0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring
1: conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This week, we talk with Amy Finnegan about Uganda and Invisible Children's Kony 2012 campaign. For the past dozen years, Finnegan has been teaching and doing research in Uganda. In particular, she studied the relationship between outside groups, such as Invisible Children, and local Ugandan activists. How are campaigns like Kony 2012 received in Uganda? Do they help or hurt the cause of indigenous Ugandan activists? Listen up to find out. We're talking today with Amy Finnegan, um, a sociologist with at the University of Minnesota, who has uh, particular expertise on social movements and activism, particularly in the case of Northern Uganda, which um, has particular salience in light of the Kony 2012 campaign put out last week by Invisible Children. So thanks, Amy, for being with us today. Thanks for
0: having me. I'm excited to be part of this new yeah. venue.
1: Yeah, great. So um, do you want to first uh, just tell us a little bit a little bit about yourself, a little background about maybe your your involvement in Uganda, and uh, maybe a little bit of your a little teaser of your research. Sure.
0: <laughs> um, well, I um, had. Have- going to Uganda myself since uh, the year 2000. So I guess that's now nearly 12 years ago. Um, and I started out in sort of a volunteer capacity when I finished university. Um, and then have kind of over the years become more and more focused in northern Uganda and in Gulu. I've worked for um, a local human rights organization there. I've worked for a large international HIV AIDS project. Um, and then I've also conducted um, research and have done teaching at the university um, in in Gulu in northern Uganda. Um, and, you know, my interest there, I think, really in northern Uganda really began um, when, I fir- when I first lived in Uganda and that year 2000-2001. And I, I was visiting a friend, um, a Ugandan friend who lived in the north. And I was just really struck with um, just the gravity of what... Um, of what war and violence does to people's lives, and um, and it sort of compelled me to to kind of want to go home and learn more about conflict and violence, and, and it compelled me definitely to continue to try to find ways to return to Uganda. So um, beyond my research, my my current sort of engagement there is is teaching a, um, a an annual uh, social medicine class every year for medical students, uh, Ugandan medical students and international medical students. So
1: okay. Great. So um, you can con- kind of comment on, you know, the the development. You've you've had a dozen years now of engagement with the the people who have um, experienced this war and who are now rebuilding their lives. Um, and so it kind of gives you a particular uh, expertise, I guess, to comment on on this unique engagement now that we're seeing with the Invisible Children um, Coney 2012 campaign. Uh, So what are what's like your initial reaction to that campaign and then maybe we can go and um, put it in the broader framework of your dissertation and your previous research and, and how we think about these types of of activism and and social movements more broadly. Uh, great. Well, I mean, so I've been studying invisible
0: children for, um, more seriously for like the last three years, but I had been aware of them, um, and their existence since their very first video in 2005. And I think my reaction to Kony 2012 is probably similar to my reaction, um, to the very first video, which I saw, um, I I think it was the spring of 2005. Um, which is real it's it's honestly, it's a real mix of ambivalence. I mean, I feel um when I remember when i when I first saw the film, i was um I was inspired and psyched and 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 moved um by what other young people um were trying to do to you know to galvanize attention to raise awareness, raise consciousness on a on a really um serious and and grave situation that you know, until about 2003 had gotten very minimal international community attention. Um, So I felt this kind of like this real, real movement and sort of excitement and inspiration. But I also remember um, feeling a sense of dissonance um, right away when I first saw that first film, um, just with the way the story was being told um, uh, about what was happening in northern Uganda. And then in the film and, and what I had sort of personally, um, experienced and saw and read about, um, you know, through my own experience, um, visiting, visiting the region. So I felt, I felt like a real sort of, yeah, dissonance really. And I think it's very similar with the Kony 2012. I mean, um, feeling, you know, some, um, some excitement and some, um, appreciation for what, um, what I think what I think are some probably some benevolent intentions, um, but also feeling deeply concerned and distressed um, about the way the story is being told, um, in particular, but also some of the impact of, of of the way the story is being told, and and the way, the impact I think um, both on on young Americans and their understanding of Africa and their understanding of their role in social change, but also. Um, on Ugandans and others that, you know, are living in the LRA-affected regions of um, East and Central Africa. So uh, ambivalence has definitely been there for me.
1: Your dissertation is called Beyond Victimhood, Narratives of Social Change from and for Northern Uganda. So, I mean, that really gives us a sense of... um, I guess where you're coming from. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more um, about your findings from that study. What, who exactly you talked to? Um, a little bit about, you know, your your um, methodology. What you did. Uh, what types of what types of people you talked to. What types of questions you asked. And then what your what your findings were. What are these different narratives of social change? What are the narratives that come um, from Uganda as opposed to the narratives that are for for Northern Uganda? um, and where those two different narratives emerge. And, um, I assume how you also talk about how those narratives interact with one another.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, yeah, the dissertation really sort of was, was born from that dissonance that I, that I was, that I've experienced, um, since the initial, since I set my my viewing of the initial film. Um, so the dissertation itself is, is a qualitative piece. Um, it's an ethno- it's based on ethnography, uh, uh, interviews and focus groups, um, which I conducted both in northern Uganda and in um, in the United States. And so it's really sort of following kind of two sort of main axes, I guess. Like the one is um, Invisible Children itself, and in particular, I was really focused on what what they're about in terms of an activist group here in the United States and sort of who they're mobilizing and what. Um, who they're mobilizing and why they're able to mobilize that group and sort of what yeah what are some of the narratives they're telling? Um, well, I did follow some of their work in Uganda. It was it was much more focused on sort of what they're about in the United States, which I um, yeah because I think in the United States is where they really play an activist role. I think in Uganda they're 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 sort of a development organization. Um, and then the other part of the dissertation is really trying to follow. Um, A handful of Ugandan indigenous um, activist groups that are involved in peace and human rights, which are similar themes that um, that uh, invisible children sort of um, uh, advocates, I guess, in their in their rhetoric. So I've been trying to kind of look at what they're about. And their methodology, and sort of, and some of the narratives that they use, and then, and then, a, a big part of the research actually was also trying to, trying to at least um, begin a conversation um, where these two sort of forms of activism could could speak to one another. And um, I took a very much like a participatory action research stance in in my work, and and I did a lot of, and I reflect a lot of myself and sort of my own journey. Um, from a model of activism that I think was much more in line with probably what Invisible Children was about, a more critical um, model now where, that I think is is hopefully and much more in the, in the values of solidarity. Um, so, with with that participatory action research stance, uh, part of what I did was was tried to um, ask Ugandans to reflect on on Invisible Children and to wa- to watch some of the films together and to sort of have to begin a little bit of a discussion about well, what is this. What does this say, and how do you how do you how do how do you feel about what it says, and, and how does it reflect on on your reality and, and what you think um, is necessary at, at this point? Um, and then, likewise, I think also with you with the um, young Americans that I spent time with, I also tried to start a little bit of a conversation with them about you know beginning to reflect on how they relate to Ugandan activists um, um, and and how um, they could be perhaps be more in dialogue with them. So definitely, like the dissertation title has says a lot of what I um, you know. I think what one of my central arguments is is that I think um, a lot of the invisible children rhetoric is is very much kind of continuing. Um, a bit of a neo-colonial story around um, Africa being a a place primarily of victims that sort of implores Western intervention. And um, what I found in my in my dissertation or in my research is that um, it's obviously much more than that, and that um, and that in fact that that victimhood I think is is, is very patronizing, and um, I think is is um, is ineffective in terms of how it. And in, in terms of how it really you know addresses probably some of the issues in, in northern Uganda. Um, I, I do have a, a chapter in my dissertation where I talk particularly around framing. Invisible children sort of has like very much sort of like a poor victims frame. Um, and I, I looked at the indigenous activism or the Uganda-originated activism having much more of a sort of a victim. I called it victims preventing the next generation of victims. So I, I, it's not that I don't think the Ugandans also use the language of victimhood because I think that they do, um, but there's much more of a sense of agency in their way that they talk about, um, the way that they, they they talk about being victims. And I think, I mean, a big, I, I think that that points to some of the work that of uh, Francesca Paletta and others about the, the the who does the naming of. Of victimhood and, and being a victim really matters. And so, if you are, um, you know, if you if you're being if you're calling yourself a victim and you're kind of using that as as a base for for action and for um, empowerment and for agency and for decision making and sort of like a platform for for further action i think that's a very different thing than having um others call, you know name a large group of people victims and particularly others coming from a you know a very powerful country um others that are primarily white naming like a largely black poor population as victims i think that's sort of the the way that, that that naming process happens is is pretty different and has it has it really changes the way that that the power of that word i guess
1: Sure. I mean, you touch on like something that's very key to sociological understandings of, of a situation like this, right? The name um, becomes important when you look at the power um, power differentials, power dynamics behind it. So when somebody, when a group of people who comes from you know a, tr- a powerful country, a place with resources, a place where um, they are people are able to mobilize in a, in a certain privileged way, and then they are, then they use the, the label of victim, um, and attach it to somebody else. It does become, become particularly powerful, I think. So what impact did you see, um, of that framing, um, by the, uh, American activists, by the young, you know, activists in the United States? What, what, uh, what, Effects did you see of of the way that they frame that um in uganda um with the with the indigenous activists that you talked to did you see any impact of the way that that was framed in the u.s
0: the impact of the way that the americans are framing it as poor victims
1: um
0: you know honestly that's i i i i think that yes i mean i make an argument that um That that the way that things are being framed really um, it does a couple things. I think I mean it really does a disservice to young young Americans who are at like a really kind of critical. Point in their lives where they're sort of learning about the world and they're kind of becoming mobilized to sort of see themselves as agents. They're like moving away from their parents. they most of their their population is that they work with are high school and college age students who are kind of coming to really understand the world and their role in it. And so I think I think I argue that their sort of their kind of short sighted um, version of of what Africa is in terms of lar- being largely comprised of victims really kind of um, teaches. Teaches Americans in a really narrow way, and um, it teaches them in a narrow way an understanding of Africa. But it also teaches in a, a narrow way um, their their possible their possible platforms for engaging or for social change. Like I think. This is a whole another piece, but Invisible Children uses, you know, um, fundraising as as a critical aspect of what activism means. And definitely, fundraising. I think if you study social movements, fundraising is an important part of of collective action. I mean, in, in terms of of social movements, and I mean, uh, largely, there's there's always been a fundraising component to social movements. But I think what Invisible Children does is really kind of emphasizes fundraising. As, at the, in the beginning is one of the only things that but one of the only actions that these young people can take and so I think it really narrows um... uh, what the young americans uh, you know how they understand africa and how they understand their role in in in, um, engaging africa and then similarly with with ugandans i mean that's the tricky part i think i i think that their their impact i think actually their impact in uganda is sort of um... is marginal (laughs) And it's not it's not severe either way, um, so I think that that disservice around victimhood actually does a greater, probably a greater disimpact to the young Americans. I think in Uganda, I mean, my experience was that um, that America that m- many of the Ugandans that I um, spent time with and that I sort of engaged on trying to get their perceptions of invisible children. I think that many of them. Um, appreciated what they had done in particular their efforts to tell a story that had gone untold for in many ways for many years and their efforts to bring resources in particular in the form of education to the region, which is something that's rarely disputed. I mean, um, my friends in Uganda would do any, you know, prioritize education at the very top. And so I think there was a real sense of appreciation for what they did and, 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 um, and they, but they also had a critique, in particular, a critique of the way the story was being told, and the, and, and and particularly the the um, the exclusion of the role of the Ugandan government and military um, in in the conflict. Um, so, I, but I do make an argument in my dissertation that ultimately there wasn't a huge backlash, like when I, of Ugandans against invisible children. And I was really surprised by that because I, coming from sort of like a post colonial perspective, I remember watching the films and being like outraged. Like, how can you tell a story about, you know, in such a narrow way, and not really sort of taking into into account the complexity of the situation, and so I remember showing up for my, you know, for my the duration of my fieldwork in two thousand nine, and being totally floored that people weren't more pissed about what um, they were seeing invisible children do, and I and I think ultimately it's because. <laughs> They they don't matter that much either way. I mean, it's like they they do some good things, they do some bad things, but their 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 like big big impact is quite small on the ground, particularly in northern Uganda. And I think I mean, there's been lots of posts on blogs about that in the last you know a uh, few week or last week, I guess, after Coney 2012 has come out as well. That you know, on the ground in Uganda, it's 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 or in Gulu in particular, it's it's kind of it's. Um, it's pretty disparate from what the story of the film is. And so people are, I think they're in the, in here, the way the story is being told, it's like you have to do something because you're the only one who can do something. And there's this terrible situation. And I think in Uganda, it's kind of like life's going on, man. And if, oh, you wanted to do something on our behalf. Oh, okay. Is, you know, you know, make things much, much more worse for us. That's okay. I don't know if you experienced that too. I know this isn't. Time for- yeah,
1: I mean, definitely. Okay. And I wonder if it's because, like you said, you expected people to be more outraged by the way that the story was presented by Invisible Children or other groups potentially like them. But. You know, it makes me wonder, is it because people in northern Uganda aren't hearing that story, that narrative that they're putting out? They're just seeing the tangible things, you know, mm-hmm. the the construction of schools and and these types of things and not seeing the social media, not seeing the way that the narrative is communicated. Um, I, it's part of it,
0: for yeah. sure, because I definitely when I was, you know, a lot of people hadn't seen the films. And when I was showing it to them, it was their first time. Um yeah. But that's where it goes back to this, just this real dissonance that I think life goes on in in Uganda. And it particularly goes on in terms of moving forward um, thanks to the work of Ugandan activists and Ugandan groups that, that do their best they can to try to address the situation of, of war and human rights. And so it's not like people are waiting around for invisible children to come and, like, fix their situation, which is the story, I think, that's being told here. And so I think I think young Americans then come away with a really, like, Sort of um, in like self indulgent, like self absorbed kind of uh, perspective on 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 what on what their role is in Northern Uganda. And while I think it's good to mobilize sort of what could be called maybe apathetic youth, I don't think that um, it's appropriate to sort of <laughs> tell them that they're doing that they're playing a more important role than they actually are. Sure.
1: Um, I wonder if you can comment on how typical this. Uh, this sort of campaign, this sort of narrative is, or you expect it might be, among, um, among you know, future activist-type campaigns, you know, is this... So the way that um, Invisible Children mobilizes using social media, you know, how does this compare to, say, um, how people mobilized about issues in the past, you know, um, and how is this reshaping the way that... that These types of groups are able to mobilize, Um, yeah, and just like compare them to other types of of groups trying to mobilize around similar issues. What are their strategies? Are they, do you see this somewhat problematic narrative emerging in other groups as well? Like, is this a is this a broader trend? This um, young Americans mobilizing to save, uh, you know, X, Y, or Z people somewhere else.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I guess I, I think it is. I think it is a, an emerging trend. I mean, I think it's it's very much in the tradition of Save Darfur, which um, I think in some ways had more structural uh, tactics. I mean, they were um, doing divestment and, and some, some, some strategies that I think did sort of link back a little bit more to the U.S. than sort of the rescue-like mentality of invisible children. But I do think that, yes, the role of social media is is playing an increasingly important role. And I, and I think that the interest of there's a surge in young Americans, particularly young privileged Americans wanting to do global studies, wanting to study abroad, wanting to travel abroad and particularly in Africa. And I think part of that is um, part of that is the role of Hollywood um, in, in sort of bringing Africa into, um, into films and into sort of um, celebrity philanthropy, um, I think it's it's partly the the work of sort of the you know in education I feel like there's a surge of sort of interest in service learning or civic engagement kind of um, education and I think that also has sort of increased um, uh, young people's um, interest in um, in doing something about what they learn and and yeah and I think Africa in particular has become sort of this this like hot space for for young Americans um, study abroad you know, programs have, have um, the numbers of of people studying abroad in Africa and the interest in that has just, has surged um, incredibly. And I think that's also related to global health, which is like a whole nother subfield that I think is also just took a huge um, sort of explosion in the last 10 years. Um, So yes, I do think that, that the, the, that there is a trend, there is a trend in moving probably because we don't live, because a lot of these young Americans don't live in um in the places in which they're advocating on behalf in particularly in africa and so i do think that social media is going to play an increasingly important role that said i don't think it has to be that way i mean i think there are models of um of activism that has it has had a transnational um dimension that has i think had a much more sort of solidarity um Kind of approach, like in particular the central American um, movement in the eighties um, where there were lots of activists in the United States that were really advocating um you know for peace for peace movements and sort of against um, military intervention in Nicaragua and Guatemala and el salvador and i but the way that those that that movement happened was much more of of Americans being um, in in regular dialogue and in communication with um Least as I understand it, with um, with ac- with activists in the region in Central America, and then the other sort of like I think quintessential act- uh, example is the apartheid movement, the anti-apartheid movement, um, and that was um, similarly really led by Africans um, and had a. So I, I I think whereas Invisible Children I think is sort of leading this. Charge sort of um, disconnected from the efforts of, of local activists. In Uganda, they don't play an activist role. They play a development role.
1: Could you tell us a little bit? I mean, this is a major critique that we're seeing in the debate um, around Kony 2012 that it disregards um, the work of local initiatives and activists in, in northern Uganda. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that story is? Like, what is what are... S- what is some of the work that you're seeing in the region by local activists? Um, what have been some of the initiatives over the past twenty years of this war by local actors um, to deal to deal with the war, to stop the violence, and to now, um, as the violence has subsided, to rebuild communities? I think like that is a uh, it's a key critique that we're hearing mm-hmm. that you know this campaign is not taking into account these on the ground actions, but yet there that that, um, story about what is taking place on the ground is still missing. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. what, what is taking place on the ground? Um, what are the local initiatives? Maybe you can tell us even just a couple of stories, a couple of people that, you know, or organizations or. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I looked at five different groups, um, in the peace and human rights, um, kind of sphere, I guess. Um, and i so I think they've they've contributed in several ways i mean, and i and I think their work had like as you sort of pointed out in your question, I think it began um much earlier than and um, sort of the invisible children's surge. so I mean, there were people that were you know, concerned about the direction of, you know, violence and war in their communities beginning shortly after, um, the Ugandan army and the, and the LRA sort of, or the antecedents of the LRA sort of began their violence in the late eighties. So like 1987, 1988, there were already people demonstrating at times in the market, in Gulu, um, women's groups that were, were concerned about war and sort of how that was going to impact their families. Um, so there's been demonstrations, there's been, um, In particular, these groups have have played a really important role in um, bringing forward peace talks. Um, Not only the most, the sort of latest and maybe arguably the most um, successful peace talks, the Juba talks in two thousand six, but even before that, I mean there were there were years of work of you know I think throughout the two thousands where some of these. Uh, activist groups, and in particular I'm referring to the Acholi Religious Leaders Peace Initiative, Human Rights Focus, the Justice and Peace Commission of the... um of uh, of the Catholic Church and then, um, though this group I think is is much less active now, this, um, civil society organizations for peace in northern Uganda, and um, at one time I think the cultural group, some of the cultural leaders, also played a pretty important role. But these these individuals and in these organizations were were critical in bringing together the parties for dialogue. Um, for you know for for moving towards peace talks I mean they would literally meet people in the bush out um, members of the LRA and try to bring members of the government to sort of start laying a framework for trying to have you know more um, formal uh, negotiations um, so I think that they have they, they played a really important role because they had contacts and they had relationships with with both sides um, so they played a really important role there. They have played um, and and they played a. They've been a strong voice um, recently. Well, in two ways. One, you know, I think Invisible Children really sort of um, kind of tells the story that they kind of discovered the night commuters and the the um, the phenomenon of children uh walking into town at night for protection and safety during the the climax of the war and um, I think some some of these activist groups in particular Ocho religious leaders peace initiative played a huge role in actually and um, in, in trying to bring to to light that the severity of that situation um, and the, some of the leaders, you know, sleeping in the bus park um as early as two thousand three and and trying to recognize how severe of a situation it was and, and 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 yes, trying to call the the world's uh media and international community to, to light. Um that also I mean these groups also a lot of them have not only an advocacy component, which more recently um there has been a stance against military intervention. I think um, like I said, they were pushing peace talks, but I think you know as as um, as the l r a bill sort of gathered got attention in the United States and sort of moved towards um, towards law and eventually Obama um, appointing a hundred military advisors I mean there were a lot of people that were really concerned about what that would mean I think uh, through the history of the war in northern Uganda, military intervention has nearly always led to um more casualties, uh and and, and disaster. It's just not been an effective uh, strategy. And people recognize that and they and they realize that that there was there was a lot to be concerned about with um with the emphasis on the role that military could play in in uh in arresting Joseph Kony um, and bringing him to the ICC. So these groups have played this advocacy role, sort of questioning military intervention um, and kind of continuing to push for the opportunity for peace talks. There's been a lot of um, cross-border di- cross dialogue and efforts to try to link civil society groups from northern Uganda with groups from Sudan, DRC, and Central African Republic, recognizing that they're going to have different relationships to the LRA. And northern Uganda... A lot of these activists, part of their sort of platform, or part of their reason they may care so much about about not um, uh, um, engaging the LRA militarily, is because they know people who have been part of the LRA, who have been abducted, and who have been coerced to participate, and they recognize that a military intervention is, you know, could lead to the death of their of their loved ones, whereas, whereas I think some of the civil society groups in the, in the rest of the region doesn't have that, that same kind of affinity, although in some cases they may, but there's been a lot of effort for these, for these groups to come together and to have a dialogue and to sort of talk about their different experiences of the war and how they might sort of kind of come together with a joint statement and joint efforts for what needs to be done, um, and then the last thing I was just going to kind of point out is like human rights focus in particular has just I think done a tremendous job with kind of continuing to trying to think about um you know how human rights have been um affected during the war and they've they've done an amazing job of kind of training um, a group of lay people to sort of pay attention to that and to sort and to be involved in in um, in reporting violations of hu- human rights, um, you know, civil and political rights, but also social and economic rights, um, in a way that those those rights can be th- those violations can be followed up upon and you know brought to court and and illuminated in sort of international reports. While it is a long and laborsome process, I think that they they have they've done a lot to sort of to bring those. To the, bring those some of those voices to light and to bring in particularly the role of um, the Ugandan government in in uh, furthering or in in excuse me the role of the Ugandan government in perpetuating human rights atrocities, um, which is something that's totally left out of of the Invisible Children narrative. So I don't know, does that give you some a few a few points or?
1: Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I think that's helpful just to to talk about that. Really, the Broad range of actors, locally um, or regionally, um, in the case of you know the surrounding neighboring countries, that have been really working on trying to resolve this conflict for the past twenty years, um, and so that is definitely a key piece that is missing from from this conversation that we're that we're seeing emerge now in a very uh, you're right a very self indulgent way that nobody is or has been or will do anything until we do it. You know, so to some extent, that sort of um, sense of individual agency or the agency of of young people in the U.S. can be like can be inspiring. Right. And can be um, can be important. You want people to feel empowered and that they can do something. But at the same time, it can't discount or remove the people who already are working on these issues and have been for a long time. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly. I think it can. It can really, like the way that Invisible Children Activism comes across, it can really drown out those voices um, in a way that I think actually can have a really, really um, significant impact on the ground. Because arguably those local um, voices and and initiatives are grounded in much more context and much more um, breadth of history and understanding of all the actors because they've lived it themselves for the last 20 plus years. And so if we're drowning out those voices and those opportunities because we're listening to like a flashy um, social media campaign put out by Westerners, I think um, we're all worse off for it.
1: Right. So, speaking of the broader context, the historical story here, um, do you think that there is something very unique and pivotal about this year, twenty twelve? I mean, this is the way the entire campaign is framed: that if it's not now, it's it's now or never, basically. And this year has some, you know, some key, uh, pivotal role to play in in ending this conflict. Do you see it that way? Do you see uh, some key uh, opportunities for um resolving this conflict in this in this year or do you not see it that way
0: that's a great question i i mean while i think while i and i think most people involved in the debate of course want the same thing which is you know the war to end um as quickly as possible with as with as you know few casualties as possible with while addressing some of the underlying issues i i don't necessarily think that 2012 is has you know, a special moment. I think Invisible Children needs to continue to find, um, needs to continue to create, um, media and a sense of urgency to what they're trying to do. I mean, I think all activists try to do that. We all try to do that, um, to try to to kind of mobilize people. We can't tell them like, oh, this could happen anytime. You know, it's like, you need to kind of put some pressure on it. And I think that they've done that very well with that. Like this expires on December 31st, 2012. Um, but in terms of sort of in the broader historical context no i don't necessarily think that there's any any particularly um salient moment that 2012 offers in this conflict
1: um i think we could pretty much wrap up here i don't know if you want to say any concluding um thoughts or something that we've left out i mean i know there's there's tons here and you and i could probably go on about this for maybe way longer than anyone else would want to listen to it. (laughs) Um, But I don't know if there's, you know, something you feel like we've left out.
0: Um, I think my last imparting words are just that I, so like I was saying, I feel a lot of ambivalence around this and I, and I've been struck by the, um, by the volume of critique about invisible children. And it's, it's, it's been in many ways, um, um, I don't know what the word is like heartening or, um, it's been satisfying to sort of see people kind of critically thinking through um, the situation and the appropriate ways to engage by both Ugandans and and, um, and uh, outsiders. Um, so I think that that has been has been exciting. I think I do think, though, um, that. We as as academics or as sociologists, um, I I think there's a lot more that we can offer than simply um, critiquing. You know what, Coney 2012 has been about. I, I do think that there's a role for there's a space for critique in this in this campaign in this endeavor. But I, I think that really I think what we really need to focus on or what I want to focus on or what I think I need to focus on is um is really thinking about how do we um, engage these like hundred million plus people that have now seen the u YouTube video and, and are and are fired up and are, you know, are disturbed that um, there is a situation like such as there is with Joseph Kony and that there's kids and there's adults that have been affected by a war in another part of the world that they didn't even know about. Um, how do we engage them in a way and sort of shift their orientation from like this rescue um, uh, mentality to to one that's really... That's really sort of based in in social justice, and that's really based in solidarity. And i I think it's possible, um, but I think it's it's i'm it's a it's a difficult task. Um, and I think for those of us who are teachers, we have you know an important role to play, maybe in our classrooms, in trying to really engage people in a way that they can they can be they can feel that fire of, of mobilization, um, but in a way that's um, in the way that's critical and, and that that involves, excuse me, it involves critical thinking and, um, that is strategic. Um, so I think that cause a lot of people have written things like, Oh, but these people have good intentions. Um, and I, and I, and I actually do believe that th- they do have good intentions, that invisible children is not just this, um, you know, selfish, um, um, misinformed kind of, um, neo-colonialist group. Um, I think that they they do have good intentions, but um, but but that doesn't mean that that's enough. Just because we have good intentions and we want to try to do something, doesn't. I don't think it's that's enough. I mean, if we really want to be effective social social movement activists, it's going to require a lot more than intentions. It's going to require preparation. It's going to require research and learning about the situation. It's going to require really thinking through strategies and mobilization, evaluation. And part of the reason I say all this is because I think I do reflect a lot on my on myself and my own kind of trajectory in in how I have thought about my role as a privileged white American in sort of addressing um, global inequality. So I, I think that we shouldn't just dismiss these people who are as just like misinformed social media celebrity following people, but just as people that could actually play a role in, In in social justice.
1: Right. I mean, and I think that's an important point to remember. In, in all of our endeavors like this, right? You don't just shut somebody down because you disa- maybe disagree with the way they're going about something, but it you see it as an opportunity to engage in conversation and to try to move um, move something forward in a positive way. So I think that's a really important point to remember.
0: Thanks, Shannon. All right.
1: Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It was really um, very informative and I think really relevant to um, things that people are talking about today. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks
0: for inviting me. It was great
1: and that is all for another episode of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. See you soon.